Hello, I'm Steve. It's good to see you guys. All right, today we are going to be reading from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, first letter to the Corinthians. I should say we're going to continue reading because our first reading was from there. Uh, In this case, we're going to read from chapter 12, starting in verse 12. First Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This is the word of the Lord. Now, we are in the season of Epiphany, as you may or may not know if you've been here with us. And the idea of Epiphany this season is that Christ came and manifested his light to the world. He manifested his light through good deeds. He manifested his light through miracles, through teaching. Christ came and he gave us the light of life, and that is what we celebrate here in this season of Epiphany. Now, in some traditions, uh, some church traditions, one of the practices that they do during Epiphany is that they take chalk and they write on their doors. Have you ever heard of this? Is this a No? Okay. So um, they take chalk and they write on their doors. And what they write is very interesting. So in this year, it it looks sort of like a strange equation. And this year, it would look like this. 20 plus C plus B plus M plus 23. So the 20 and the 23, that's the year. And then in the middle, the CBM, those are the traditional first names, the initials of the first names of the three magi that came to visit Christ. And so in some traditions, what they do is they chalk the door with this little equation, 20 plus C plus B plus M plus 23. And the reason why they do that is to signify that this house is an outpost of the kingdom of God that this house has been marked. Christ's light shines here. And any weary traveler 
can come into these doors and find rest and bask in this light for a little while. That's what that chalk means. And so here we are. This is what Epiphany is about. It's about not Christ necessarily in the the flesh manifesting his light because he is no longer here in the flesh. He manifests his light now through us, through his body, through his church. And so now, as Christ is at the Father's right hand, he longs to continue his mission of sending his body into the world as he was sent into the world to shine light. Remember when he taught us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter uh, 5 and 6 and 7, he said that you, you, his people, you are the light of the world. He said you are like a city on a hill which cannot be hidden. Nobody takes a light and puts it on a stand and then puts a basket over it. Nobody shuts off all the lights in the city on a hill. No, the city on a hill is there to shine forth. The, the light on a stand is there to shine forth. And that is who you are. And none of us, he says, should ever do anything to quench that light. And this is what we remind ourselves of every time we celebrate Epiphany. And so today... We're going to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. And in the Corinthian church, they were positively doing seemingly everything they could to put a basket over that light. They were seemingly doing everything they could to turn off all the lights on the city, in, in the city on a hill. And the main way that they were doing that, now listen, here's, this is all I'm going to say this whole time. Normally I have three, four points. I only got one today. This is it. So listen. The main way the Corinthians were stifling the light of Christ is by attempting to bring in cultural hierarchies into their church. They they brought in from the Roman world cultural hierarchies into the church and then they baptized those and called them good. That they were the will of God. And Paul is going to have none of this. He says, this is not the way we do it. And so in the, in the light of what they were trying to do, by bringing these hierarchies into the church, Paul says to them, you are, you are causing the light of Christ that is supposed to shine forth through this congregation in Corinth, you're causing it to flicker. You're causing it to grow dim. And so what Paul is going to tell us here is that when the body of Christ... He uses this metaphor of the body. We'll get into this. When when the body of Christ is functioning properly, when it is what it is supposed to be, it abolishes every false hierarchy that comes into it. It abolishes every false hierarchy that comes into it. And by the way, just as a parenthetical remark, I say false hierarchies because there are some legitimate ones. Right, right. I mean, for example, the, Paul is very clear that the church in d- its various congregations needs to submit to the authority of elders, a body of elders, or depending on tr- your tradition, then the bishop or whatever. The point is, there are legitimate hierarchies, but what the Corinthians are doing is importing false hierarchies, and Paul is going to have none of it. Now, in order, if, if we don't understand this, the stakes are very high, so let me just try to help you understand this. If... Um, We understand that the church of Christ is planted 
in various cultures across the world. It is always planted in a particular culture among a particular people who speaks a particular language and a particular geography. That is always true, and that pleases God. Therefore, there is no universal model for everything that a congregation must do. Right, that was the mistake of, of European imperialism in the 19th, in the 18th and 19th centuries is we bring this church to you and you must cease to become what you were and become like us and then you may worship Christ. No, that is not how it is. That's not what the Bible says. There is no universal model for the church. Every church from this one to everyone across the world is, exists both in the image of Christ and in the image of the people that make it up. And this is good. And that's the same thing, by the way, that Jesus did. He came in the image of God and the image of first century Judaism. He was a Jew, right? So this is always true of the church. But that reality that the church is both cultural and universal, this reality comes with both a blessing and a temptation. The blessing is that the gospel can be planted in any soil, any soil across the world, and it can grow up and, and provide a magnificent canopy under which the nations may find shade and rest. That means that African churches will feel African. That means Asian churches will feel Asian. That means European churches will feel European and American churches will feel American, and that is good news. That's the blessing, but there's also a temptation with this dual reality of the church. And that temptation is equal in gravity to the blessing. The temptation is that we will bring our cultural assumptions into the church without reflection and assume that they are God's will. And so it's very important, like if we don't know how to find the dividing line between the cultural practices that please God and the cultural practices that displease God, then what's at stake is the light of Christ shining forth from every congregation in the world, this congregation and all of them. If we don't understand where that line is, we risk dimming that light. And so we have work to do. It's not easy work. We have to figure out how to learn the difference between those. And we have to, once we discover it, cast out the cultural baggage that doesn't belong we have to cast out the cultural hierarchies that make the chalk on our door a mockery. But if we do this, if we do this, it's hard work, it is, but if we do, those signs of the kingdom that are inscribed on our door by the hand of our Lord Jesus Christ, it will, it will make it true that this is a place where Christ's light shines. And by the way, I, I don't have an ax to grind up here. You, you, I, I bet some of you are wondering like, oh, so you're gonna tell us what the hierarchies are. Are you gonna tell us? No, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm not gonna go beyond what is in the text here, as any good preacher should. So let's look at it. Let's start with 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And we'll go with 
uh, verse 12. Listen. He says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now, if you've ever read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you'll know that this metaphor of the body, as, as Paul begins to compare it to the church, this is the longest extended metaphor in Scripture that, that I know of. Maybe there's another one, but as far as I'm concerned, this is the longest metaphor in the Bible. Therefore, we must gird ourselves because metaphor is a powerful thing. Metaphor is a very powerful thing. What it is, is it, it takes something unknown and compares it to something known so that we may know the unknown by the features of the known. You, I mean, you know this, we use this all the time. Uh, Shakespeare, but soft, what light through yonder window breaks? It is the east and Juliet is the? Oh my gosh, thank you English teachers. Yes, Juliet is the sun. Juliet is the sun. Isn't that magnificent? But here's the thing, yes, we, English, more English teachers abound. Um, what, what Shakespeare is doing there, we, we don't know anything about what Juliet looks like. We don't know anything about her personality, her character, whatever. All we know is Juliet is the sun, and that's all we really need to know. We know by that comparison what is unknown to what is known. We know that to, to see Juliet is to bask in her radiant beauty. We know that to know Juliet is to be pulled into the gravitational pull and orbit of her kindness and her marvelousness. I mean, like, that's what we know just by that one comparison. And there's much more. So metaphor is powerful. And Paul uses this metaphor to describe the church. He says the church is a body. Now, unfortunately, metaphors can wear out. Unfortunately, metaphors can become threadbare, and they no longer shock us with the same amount of power as they were intended to. I was reading this week about this Swiss neurologist named Edward Claparade. If you're Swiss and I said that wrong, forgive me. But I'm an American, and that's how we say it <clears throat> here in America. Anyway, he was a neurologist, and he, most of his work centered around um, work on memory. How does memory form? How does it work? And he had this <clears throat> patient that he was researching. She had lost all of her short-term memory, could not create a new memory, but she had everything before that intact. Her long-term memory, she could remember with great precision. And so every day that they had a, an appointment, she would come in, she would introduce herself to him for, as if for the first time. He would greet her as if for the first time, and then they would begin their work. And the next day, she would come in and say, oh, hello, I am so-and-so, and introduce herself for the first time, and on and on and on. And he was, the, um, Claparade was, was perplexed. How is it that the brain can no longer form any new memories? And so he came up with a way to test this. He put a sharp pin in his hand. And so when she came in the next time and said, oh, hello, I'm so-and-so, he shook her hand and she yelped and jerked her hand back. 
Well, she comes in the next day. She has no memory of this encounter. She introduces herself, and he puts his hand out, and she hesitates. Isn't that amazing? Yes, she hesitates. And so even though, and he goes on to explain this in great detail, but that's not the point. The point is, metaphor is like a pin in the hand. That's a, that's a simile, but it doesn't matter. Anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, a simile is just a metaphor with the scaffolding still up. So, to, no, no, I just, I, I, okay. Um, it's like a pin in the hand, okay? And it's meant to make us yelp. It's meant to surprise us and wake us up and take two things and crash them together and make us go, what? But when I stand up here and say, yes, the church is the body, and you're like, mm-hmm, yep, 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 we know that. Okay, so let's try. Let's try to see if we can understand how powerful this would have been for the original audience. We gotta understand the cultural context into which Paul says this. So, if you've read 1 Corinthians, you know that this church was, to use the technical term, a hot mess. There's all sorts of factions involved. They were arguing with one another. They were divided. And the factions essentially came down to, and we read about them earlier in, in, the, in the service. If you remember, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Christ. You know, there was all these different factions. And the, the main faction was between what was called the spiritual people and the unspiritual people. Now, the people who made this division were clearly the spiritual people. And the spiritual people defined themselves as those who manifested these magnificent gifts of the Spirit, specifically speaking in tongues. So they would say, look, look at these ecstatic gifts that we have. Look at these marvelous Spirit-born gifts that we have. We are the spiritual of the church, and those who don't, the unspiritual. Okay, so we have this faction. All of a sudden, they have introduced a hierarchy into the church that does not belong there. There's spiritual and unspiritual. There's the haves and the have-nots. There's those of us who are ecstatic and those of us who are just ordinary. And so essentially, this spiritual elite which, by the way, happened to be the elite of their culture. They weren't just elite in the church. They were also elite outside the church. They were the wealthy. They were the governing class. They had high social standing. So do you see what's starting to happen here? They, they are taking the hierarchy that they exist in outside the church, and they are bringing it into the church. And by the way, there's no evidence to ever that, that I can find that the lower class, those unspiritual people, the, the, the second class Christians, had any complaints about this hierarchy. Like this is just the way the world worked in those days. This is how it was. Because Roman culture was hierarchical by nature. So, Paul comes in and uses this body metaphor. And when he does, he's not being innovative here. He didn't make this up. This is actually used very widely in Roman culture by uh, politicians and rhetoricians and orators. 
This is a very common thing. If you want to go spend your Sunday afternoon reading those speeches, you could, your cup will runneth over. It's a very common metaphor. But here's what, okay, so listen, listen. Here's what's interesting. Is that in every case that you find this body metaphor in the speeches of these politicians, rhetoricians, orators, every case, it is used to uphold the Roman hierarchy, the, the, the Roman hierarchy as it existed in their social classes, classes. In every case, that metaphor was used to uphold the hierarchy. So I'll just give you one example. Uh, Livy was a um, Roman historian, and he talks about a uh, senator whose name was Menenius Agrippa. And he talks about Agrippa uh, in the 5th century BCE, BC, whatever your persuasion is, um, and he, uh, he's dealing with a slave rebellion. The slaves are rebelling. They're not out in their fields plowing them, harvesting them, and so Rome begins to get hungry. And so Agrippa stands up and he gives a speech. And the section that's important for us is that he uses this metaphor of the body, the body politic, to appeal to the slaves to say, get back to work. Because if you don't work, the governing class can't eat. Poor guys. But they, that's the whole point. If, if everybody needs to know their place, Everybody needs to know where they exist in the hierarchy, so go do it. And here, by the way, here's a metaphor for why this makes sense. So in every case that I know of where a Roman politician used this metaphor, it was to uphold and enforce the hierarchy. And so I hope that you're starting to feel the pin in the hand of what Paul is saying here. Because look, let's read this again. Verse 12, just as the body is one body, excuse me, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So Paul is addressing these Christians who have created these factions, these elite Christians, these are the ones who he's talking to, who created these factions of spiritual and unspiritual. And Paul says, no, all are baptized into one body. All are made to drink of one spirit. There's no Jew or Greek. There's no slave or free. These are the two hierarchies that he mentions here. There's, there's none of this. There's no division we don't bring those divisions from outside into the church because we were all baptized into one body and we were made to drink of the same spirit. We are all one and the spirit is not divided. We, we don't have like spiritual Jim Crow laws, so to speak. You drink from that fountain and you drink from that one. The elite can come over here, but the unspiritual can come over here. This is not the way the body of Christ works. So you're starting to see why this metaphor, Paul is using it to completely flip the normal way of understanding a body. He goes on, verse 21. 
The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet. This is exactly what these spiritual Christians were saying. I have no need of you. Nor, the, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. <laughs> and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division. That there may be no division. That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So you see what he's doing? He completely flips this hierarchy this, this hierarchical understanding that they have brought into the church, he flips it on its head. It's completely upside down. He says, don't bring these cultural hierarchies, elite and poor. Don't bring these Jew and Greek, slave and free. Do not bring these into the church because they have no place here. In the church, the least of the people is the greatest. The least presentable members are the ones that we give most honor. Isn't that astonishing? This is, this is insane. I, I think if Paul were, to, were alive when the, the Senator Agrippa was there, he would say, you get out into the fields. You go t till the, the lines and, and harvest the grain. You go and feed yourself. Feed, take the slaves, put them at the banqueting table and feed them. And let's never forget that Jesus, when he was asked by his disciples, who is the greatest? in the kingdom of God. Do you know what he said? He took a child and he put them, that child in their midst. And he said, this is the greatest in the kingdom of God. This child in their culture who was overlooked, not a second class citizen, a third class, maybe fourth. This child is the greatest in the kingdom. And so Paul learned all of this turning hierarchical structures upside down. He learned that from Jesus. And if our churches in general, and our church in particular, if we learn this, if we grasp onto this, we organize ourselves by this principle, there will be light emanating from us. Or I should say more light. We have light. More light emanating from us. And then the chalk drawings, the chalk uh, on the, 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 what's the thing called on the doors? On our doors, let's just say on the doors. I hate it when I'm like in the middle of something, I can't think of it. When a chalk on the door will begin to mean something, the chalk on the door which says, this is an outpost of the kingdom, will begin to mean something. Okay, now, I've been saying a lot of things. Let's, let's just bring it back down to earth and see what we're supposed to do with this. Let's begin with a thought experiment. Um, let's just suppose um, that we exist at the end of the 19th century, right here in Georgia. End of the 19th century, turn of the century. You most likely know that in the post-bellum South, after the Civil War, after Reconstruction, that Southern culture was divided by race, yes? 
and it was codified by a series of Jim Crow laws and black codes. And that division, that cultural division, as you probably know, also came into the church. So most churches during that time were either all white or they were all black. And there were a few churches that had white members and black members, but the black members had to sit in the balcony away from the white people. Now, we look back on that and we're like, of course, how could they have been so blind? The reason why they were so blind is because that is how their culture was organized. Those are the hierarchies that they learned from before they were born. Like this is the way the world worked. And so why wouldn't it also work in the church? But can you imagine walking into a church in the post-bellum South in which the white members and the black members were sitting together in each other's midst and the white members who had all the cultural power outside the church said to the black members, teach us, help us to understand. You, outside of these walls, you are marginalized. There are laws, there's terror organizations, all of this, but in these walls, we will honor you. In these walls, we want you to sit at your feet. Teach us. Can you imagine being in a church like that? Wouldn't there be some power there? Wouldn't you walk in there and say, something happened here? <laughs> Wouldn't that be amazing? And where did that power originate? If, if our thought experiment ever came true, where would that power have originated? It's be it originated in Christ, who ordered his body in this way, that there would be no hierarchies, that there would be nothing imported from outside, no false hierarchies from the culture. Now, as I mentioned before, Paul does mention two cultural hierarchies, you know, the Jews and the Greeks, slaves and free. The thing is, those two hierarchies, they, they don't concern us today. These are not, these are not hierarchies that, that we're tempted to import into the church. So, am I gonna name some? <laughs> no. No, I'm not gonna name, I mean, you, you probably think, oh, he's, he's up here, he's gonna tell us. No, I'm not going to, because here's the thing. Whatever it is that we're dealing with, we're actually dealing with blind spots. And so these have to come to the light through honest and humble discussion and conversation with one another. Not from one guy flapping his gums from the front. I'm not gonna tell you what I think it is. We need to come together and find out what is it. And so in light of that, I'm not gonna submit any potential hierarchies that need to be subverted. I'm just saying, I'm just going to submit a question. This is the question we need to ask ourselves in conversation with one another. Where does the church mirror the cultural hierarchies that exist outside? And if and when we find them, how are we going to flip them upside down? And, and when we're able to do that, the light of Christ will come pouring forth into the world through our congregation, through the church. Now, I know this can sound frightening, but 
I, I'm not, I don't style myself as you know, an Old Testament prophet with a fire in his belly who's here to just say all the things and make sure you submit. That's not me. I, I, and I know who you are. This, is, this year marks a decade of my family being in this family of Roswell Community Church. And I know that this church is like the most caring, loving, humble, honest group of people that I've ever had the pleasure of being involved with and that we would never knowingly bring in a divisive hierarchy like the Corinthians did. We would never knowingly do that because we love each other. We're, this, is like, this is the best congregation in the world as far as I'm concerned. We would never knowingly do that. But at the same time, it's also true that we are products of our culture. Every single one of us are products of our culture and therefore, we do have blind spots. And that is why we need each other. This is Paul's whole point. Like, can, can, the, can the foot say to the, the hand, I don't need you? Can the head say to the feet, I don't need you? No. Every part is necessary. We need each other in order to expose these blind spots. And so we must have these conversations. But those conversations don't need to frighten us because if we remember our head, if we remember Christ, our head, and how he created his church, how he organized his body, the method by which he did that, then all the fear of having conversations like this will flow right out of our feet. Think about it. The most fundamental, listen, the most fundamental hierarchy in existence is God above, creatures beneath. That one is baked into the created order. God is high, we are low. God created, we are the creation. There's a clear line here between the haves, or the have in this case, and the have-nots. God has all. God possesses everything. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. His cup runneth over with blessing. And so us, these have-nots over here, everything we have is the product of grace. Everything we have is the result of his everlasting kindness in bestowing it to us. He is the have, we are the have-nots. That is the most fundamental hierarchy in existence. And therefore, what a strange set of events that occurs when God came to dwell among us in Christ. Christ is not born a king. He is not born among the haves. He is not born among the governing class as a ruler. He is born as a poor man to a poor family in the image of a slave. He is very much one of the have-nots. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that Christ did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. If anyone ever had the right to cling to equality with God, it was Christ. And he said, no, I am coming to the bottom. Equality with God is not something I am going to grasp at. But instead, Christ emptied himself. He gave himself. He kneeled down with a towel around his waist and he performed the work of a slave in washing his disciples' feet. It's astonishing. And then he goes even further down. 
Jesus Christ, at every turn in his life, was faithful to the will of God. He said, the will of God is like my food. I feed on it, the will of God. But in the end, he submitted himself to be found in the image of a sinner. He is the ultimate blessing. He is the ultimate blesser. And yet in the end, he found himself made into the image of a curse. That's what Paul says in Galatians. He himself became our curse. And he gave himself to the cross. And here is where the ultimate reversal of even the most fundamental hierarchy in the entire universe was was occurring. And that creation in the cross, creation rose in ascendancy over its creator and slayed him. And this, we are told in the Bible, was the will of God. But three days later, he was raised to life, never to die again. And in sending his spirit on the day of Pentecost, he organized his body to mirror what he had done in his life, death, and resurrection, which is to overturn these power structures that do not belong in the church. Never forget, it is the head that determines the character of the body. It is the head that determines the shape and the agenda of the body. And so if Christ did this, how much more, brothers and sisters, should we? And if we do, the light of Christ will begin to shine to the nations. Therefore, as we begin to live into our birthright as the body of Christ, as we begin to overturn these and see these blind spots and overturn these hierarchies that potentially we have smuggled in without even knowing it, as we begin to do this, we will hear the faint scratching of our Lord chalking our doors, saying, here is where my light shines. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said. Now, this table is the place where we come to remember that all of the hierarchies that we have submitted ourselves to no longer exist. It was Paul in Galatians who said, now in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither man nor woman, but all are one in Christ Jesus. And Jesus set this table for us. He is hosting us now and here so that when we come, we will remember that none of us are second class. All of us, even the, the, the ones who have less honor out in the world, they are of greatest honor. And we all come to this table in equal need of grace. So let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we have no one but you. And when we are thinking right, we desire none but you. And so, Father, I pray that as we begin moving in the ways that you lead us, you would grant us the strength to look all of our blind spots square in the face. And we can begin to live faithfully 
in light of what you reveal to us. Now we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a meal for all God's people who call on the name of Christ, and so come and welcome to Jesus Christ.